In this prelude to Eerie History, Mike Moran interviews Andrea Perrin of The Conjuring House to get the real scoop on what really happened there. I'm absolutely stoked to have a chat with you, Andrea Perron, Perrin in Canada. Perrin, yeah. And that's Perrin. what I thought. Yeah. We have different terminologies here. ZZ, you know, um, you've written five books. You have a new show on Travel and Escape, Bathsheba, Search for Evil. And you lived a decade in the, you want to call it famous or infamous Conjuring House? Uh, well, it's probably more infamous than it is famous. Fair enough. Um, welcome to Canada and welcome to my little interview series. Thank you for having me. All right. How you doing? I love my people north of the border. I truly do. Awesome. Um, one of my um, favorite memories is of going to Quebec City the, for the first time. And I was so blown away by its beauty and its grandeur. And uh, there's so much more of Canada to explore. Uh, unfortunately, there's only a few months out of the year that I can tolerate the weather. So, you know, once we get past COVID, um, I intend uh, to come back. Awesome. Vancouver's great. It's It would be equivalent to Seattle, I guess. Seattle, yes. Oregon. Mm, I have friends there. Awesome. And, a, and a, quite a large following in Vancouver as well. Oh, totally. Um, tell me about that Halloween weekend you just had with the live feed of The Conjuring House. <sighs> It was much more emotional than I thought that it would be. Um, I felt like in some way, I more dreaded the plane ride getting there than I did the actual event. Um, honestly, um, I knew that while I was in Rhode Island that I would see a lot of my friends and followers. Um, I arranged a special luncheon away from the farm so that everybody could gather and we could, um, you know, share the experience without inundating round top road with traffic that it didn't deserve and that the neighbors didn't deserve. Um, and that went brilliantly. Um, it was, uh, hard for my family, harder for my family than it was for me. And the reason being, I think, is because I've spent so much time writing about it, reliving it in my trilogy, House of Darkness, House of Light, that um, even though they all participated in the, the literature part of it, you know, if I would write a chapter about one individual in the family, I would read that through to them and make sure that it was exactly how they recalled, you know, make it as authentic and as organic as possible. Um, but only my mother has read the entire series of books. She's the only one. Um, nobody else wanted to revisit it. It was just too emotional. It was too hard. Um, and when something is that difficult, it's not what you want to plunge yourself into. I remember when in 2011, when I published the first of the three books, I handed a hardbound copy to my sister, Christine. She handed it back to me when she was no more than 60 pages in. 
with tears in her eyes and said, I'm so sorry, honey, I can't do this. So I knew that it had struck a chord and I knew that it would be difficult uh, to put this program together. I had to not beg, but cajole um, and said, you know, this is our one opportunity to tell our story the right way, not to have somebody else tell their version of our story or a story about their experiences at the farm or worse yet to make stuff up as they went along, um, which there's been far too much of far too much. So uh, my mother um, spent some time crying that Saturday night. Uh, My father was troubled, troubled by it, by his time there. My sister, Nancy, was an emotional wreck. Um, Cindy and Christine, who, you know, came in with my mother remotely from Georgia, uh, they did pretty well with it. Um, Cindy had said she would never go back to the farm, ever. And after we did an episode of Kindred Spirits there, and she suffered an attack in the farm, uh, in the farmhouse. And so, uh, and my mother, when we left in June of 1980, swore that she would never return to the property and she never did. So, you know, I understood, you know, my sister Christine takes care of my mother. Um, She lives with her in Georgia. And so it was not something that she could travel to, although I think that she would have done well and she and she did very well recounting her own episodes and her own recollections. Um, but some memories are hard to um, hard to face. And my mother had once said to me when I was writing notes in preparation for writing the trilogy, which was really only supposed to be one book, and it turned into three. They're intense. Um, You know, she said to me at one point, she stopped. I had all my sisters around the table and my mother and April was my sister. April was still with us at the time. And um, and I was just writing furiously as fast as my hand would travel across the page with a pen in it. And my mother reached over and she put her hand on top of mine and I stopped. And she said, we spent decades trying to bury our dead. And yet it's amazing as we exhume them now, how close to the surface they're buried. And I thought that was one of the most profound things that she had ever said. Um, And so it really became a part of my mantra around the books. Mm -hmm. If anybody wants to know the real true story, um, and, and all it's, it's glory and gore. Um, that's where to find it. You're not yes. going to find it on Wikipedia. You're not going to find it on a thousand other websites that have decided to take our story and to twist it into, you know, what they want to suit their own purposes. Um, the real true story is in the books and not all of it 
is in the books because there were incidents, Mike, that were so profound and so uh, disturbing that my sisters did not want them included because they did not know at the time how this text, this literature would be received in the paranormal community. As I was writing the books, I did not know, and I'm being completely honest with you, Mm -hmm. I did not know there was a worldwide paranormal community. I didn't know if anybody (laughs) was going to want to read our story. And I published the first book three years before The Conjuring came out. Um, I published the second book uh, in 2012. The film came out in 2013, and I published the third book in um, 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, the third book is actually the most um, compelling, I think, of all three. The third book, which I thought, you know, I had already done it in draft. Um, and um I thought, okay, well, this will be the easiest of the three, and it's the shortest of the three. Uh, so it's like 450 pages. <laughs> it's the shortest yeah, of short. the three. <laughs> and um, I really thought that because we were leaving the farm and what happened subsequently um, would be leaving it behind, you know, like some form of closure. And it wasn't. It was the most difficult of the three, because as I realized, speaking with every member of my family, all of whom were living at the time, um, my baby sister, April, passed away in 2017. I'm so glad she got to see her story come out into the world before she passed away tragically. Um, I thought. Well, you know, this is literally and figuratively closing the chapter Mm -hmm. on this part of our lives, this decade of our lives. And it wasn't. It it exposed what happens when that door is opened to spirit, when uh, it's a door that can never be closed. And we have all had numerous uh, encounters with spirit since we lived at the farm. Um, We moved in there when I was 12. We moved out when I was 21. I'm 63. It's been 50 years. Mm -hmm. And still that place is such a permanent part of my consciousness It is literally the only place on earth that feels like home to me. Another thing that my mother said that I thought was prophetic um, when we were leaving the farm um, was that we could leave the farm, but the farm will never leave us. And no truer words were ever spoken. Not Um, ever. That's what I was going to ask. Um, when your family and you were went back to the house this past Halloween, do you feel your guys's energy was remembered? Yes. Whatever is in the house. Yes. 
Um, but I also know that the spirit activity in the house was muted because there was an army of tech people, um, you know, camera crew everywhere, uh, cameras, um, I sell cameras everywhere in every room except the bathroom. I hope they weren't in the bathroom. Um, and um, they didn't like all the activity. It was disconcerting to them. It's always disconcerting to them. Um, and I knew where they were. At one point, the spirit that loved my father so much, who he thinks is Mrs. Arnold, um, Mrs. John Arnold um, did uh, make contact, physical contact with him, but she came to him. Um, she was always in the cellar. Uh, he went down the third and last night of the live stream and he felt nothing. And yet while he was down there, well, he stumbled on the stairs going down and he fell. Um, which was extremely upsetting to everyone that was involved with the production because I had said weeks in advance, weeks in advance, someone needs to be directly in front of him. Someone needs to be directly behind him to catch him. If he falls, those stairs are treacherous. They are dark. He has uh, glaucoma and he's 86 years old. So he must be protected at all cost. He must be protected. And, and yet in spite of that, he fell. Oh, no. um, and uh, my sister, Nancy went ballistic, like out of her mind. I was so shocked that I just sat there. I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, just paralyzed um, for several moments. Um, I, I couldn't even I couldn't even get up out of the seat where I was to go check on him. I literally froze in place with fear. Um, Did you almost have like a a PTSD mo moment from when you were little to all of the events happening, like when yes. someone was harmed? Yeah. Yeah. Plus, it was very difficult too because one of the producers suggested to my family that we recreate the seance that almost claimed my mother's life. And the blowback from that was a surge of negative energy showered upon him for even making the suggestion. Um, and, you know, I've worked with this gentleman for a long time and, you know, we have a, a personal relationship. Um, not just professional, we genuinely care about each other and each other's families. And, um, you know, he had suggested to me a couple of months ago when we were in the initial planning stages of the live stream, uh, which I was involved in really from start to finish, that, um, that he make that suggestion just, you know, to see what kind of response he would get. And, and I said, you know, that's not a good idea. I just don't think that that's wise. Um, first of all, nobody would participate in, I can tell you right now. Um, and there's been too much exploitation 
of my family, you know, people who have masqueraded as legitimate paranormal investigators going into that house and then making a mockery of my family's story. Um, and I did call out the community. I don't know how much of the live stream that you watched. And I think emotions were running very high because it was on the aftermath of um, the question being posed, would you want to recreate the, no. Um, but there was this, just this surge of almost toxic negative energy that came from my whole family around that issue. And then not long after, my father and my sister Nancy excused themselves and went out into the common area of the farm where the family lives that currently owns it, the Heinzens, and um, left me behind. Hmm. And that's when I was asked if I would describe what happened that night. And I did. But at the end of it, and Mike, I swear to you, I, this was not a preconceived notion on my part. It was not. Um, but there have been several things that I have seen uh, that have gone out um, on the internet or on Amazon of people that have gone in there and made their own films or their own documentaries or you know, just television shows, things like that. I did not call out anyone by name. They know who they are. But what I did do was get angry. And I am a person who gets angry about, oh, maybe once a decade, right. where I just really like get out of her way. She's out of her mind. Just let her vent it, get it out of her system and come back down. Um, and it takes a lot to push me to that point. Um, and I was pushed. Wow. And I felt like I needed to say something to the entire paranormal community. And at that moment, I believe I was told later that we had approximately 180,000 live viewers wow. when this spilled out of me. And basically, I said, you don't get to do this. You don't get to um, behave this way. You don't get to falsify any kind of manifestation. You don't get to pretend you're possessed. You don't get to um, exploit my family or my, especially my mother's pain. Um, and um, woe be unto you. Wow. If you do. Um, and so I'm sure it shocked a lot of people because they're used to me, you know, they're used to just me, Annie. Cause um, it's you living your life. Like this is you recreate, like rehashing old wounds, so to speak. Yeah. Um, reopening them, gouging yeah. them open. Yeah. You know, I mean, these are things that never healed. They might have a well, uh, well-developed scab, mm -hmm. but they were ripped off 100%. that weekend. Yeah, they were ripped off and there was the gaping wound and out of it came my utter contempt for people who uh, 
care to exploit my family's pain and our story for their own fame and fortune uh, or, you know, moment of 15 minutes of whatever, you know, uh, no, they don't get to do it. And if they do do it, they're going to have to deal with me. Right. So I called the community out and basically said, I expect people to comport themselves as adults mm-hmm. um, who take this seriously, who are compassionate and passionate about working in this field, who uh, find it anathema to fake evidence, who are in it for all the right reasons. And if you're not, it will come back to haunt you. And so that's where I went during the final hours of the live stream. Uh, I did some investigating. I normally don't, Mike. I'm sure you know me well enough to know that I don't even feel like I need to um, investigate anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, To me, it's I understand why other people want to and the fascination, the curiosity, all of that, the history, the mystery. I get it. But for me, um, it feels almost like a waste of my time. I'm looking for something I already know exists. So what's the point of that? Yeah, fair enough. That does lead me to my next question, though, with what we were just talking about. Like, I'll use means examples, kind of quick story. I've investigated a location a couple times a year for the past five years. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Sometimes we get no evidence. Sometimes we get some evidence, right? I kind of view it like mm-hmm. you can view it almost like fishing. You go to you go to the river. Sometimes you get a fish. Sometimes you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, now that being said, sometimes you get more than you you bargain for. Like there was one time where I I, I'm, I view myself as a very respectful investigator. I go with the history and I try and talk. I go with that. Like all the knowledge I have, I never try to conjure things up or call things out because that's disrespectful. Um, but I was trying to talk to one of the previous homeowners that's now allegedly a spirit of the house. And I got choked. Like I felt a hand on me choke. That was a rude awakening for me because it scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Um, Cause like you can't control it. You feel that and you can't control it. You can't rip it off you. You can't, you just, right. you're at their mercy. So I yeah, went you feel like you're dancing with the devil. Yeah, yep. I know. Exactly. And um, cause the, well, obviously you of anyone would know, you can't describe that feeling of the hand. like you know what a human hand feels like, but when it's a hand from the other side, it's petrifying to have that happen. So, that being said, what are your thoughts on the amount of because we just kind of talked about this about the paranormal teams, the traffic coming through the house that say it's just a house, or do you feel that they're actually playing with fire, especially if you're being disrespectful doing so? I would say more the latter than the former. Right. I understand both sides. You know, I flipped that coin back and forth and back and forth. Uh, The previous owner and I had a falling out so bad that that I lost access to the house for six plus years. Wow. Um, Our story never changed. Let it just, you know, be said and be out there that um, our story is probably if not the most well-documented, certainly one of the most well-documented hauntings in history. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And our story has remained completely and entirely consistent mm-hmm. for more than 50 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the previous owner wanted desperately to have a famous haunted house. And then when the film came out and people started inundating the property and uh, doing stupid things that people do, um, she did a complete 180 and said, you know, everyone go away. There are no ghosts here. But then she took it an extra step and said, the Perrin family made all of it up. Well, them's fighting words. And that was a declaration of war. Um, she called my mother a liar on live television, national television. <laughs> all done here. All done. All done. Um, but in the process of things getting very ugly, the, the real dark cloud that hung over uh, everything around the film, The Conjuring, which was a well-made film. It just didn't tell the truth. You can't compress 10 years into two hours. You know, the, and it was based on the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, not on my books. So the, you know, James Wan, the director, the producers, everybody associated with the film read my books. James Wan said to me, oh, hell no. No. Could we ever, ever tell your story? What would be the point of making a film where nobody stays to watch it till the end. It literally runs them out of the theater. There's no point in doing that. Um, it's, uh, you know, the, the true story is far more intense than the film is and so different that it's incomparable. Um, there are so many glaring discrepancies between what actually happened and what ended up in the script and on film that uh, it's virtually unrecognizable to our real story. So, um, you know, part of the issue was that they were going to film, recreate the farmhouse on a soundstage and do the outside filming at the farm. And there was a deal to do that set in place with the previous owner. And Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema reneged on that deal because James Wan said he would not only not step foot on that property, he would not step foot in Rhode Island. He was so freaked out after reading the story. Um, and so the two screenwriters who, uh, in an act of good faith, I believe, tried to cherry pick, with my permission, um, some actual elements of the true story and combine them with uh, elements of the case files from Ed and Lorraine Warren, they basically recreated um, a whole third story. They created a whole third story. And that they conjured up a film script by you know, pulling together different aspects of two different alternate perspectives of the same events. For what it is, it's an excellent rendering of a scary story but i don't think of our our story our memoir as a horror story i think of it as a love story with a wicked supernatural twist right um it is i think the only time in holly weird history that a film was so toned down from the original um 
the original documentation behind it that it's it's literally unrecognizable i mean when people read my books they're like what does this have to do with the conjuring I'm like, well not much but um i'm really grateful for the conjuring too because had it not been for that blockbuster feature film um my real true family collective memoir would most likely just be languishing in obscurity rather than the top selling paranormal book of all time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I mean, other than a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, you know, I'm, I'm keeping pretty good company, you know, if I'm up there. Um, And, um, and so I am grateful for everybody that worked on the film and put their whole heart and soul into it. Well aware that as they were making it, my entire family was alive and was going to see it. You know, they wanted to honor us the best way that they could. Uh, James Wan didn't even know what to make of it at first because the uh, the Warrens had never been allowed. My mother would not allow them to, to write a book about what happened to us or their experiences about it or anything. Um, uh, when we parted ways with the Warrens, it, it wasn't pleasant at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, it was made in the film to look like they moved in. And, you know, there was uh, an exorcism, which Ed would never have conducted an exorcism. He was a devout Roman Catholic. He was the only layman on the planet that was trained in uh, the ritual of exorcism to assist with one, not to conduct one. That was to be left to the priests who did that. My mother was not possessed. Some people would argue the point that she was uh, briefly possessed by something not of this world. I think there's an argument to make there. But I perceive what happened to my mom the night of the seance to be an attack, um, one that she barely survived. Um, And I know that whatever attacked my mother had all the power that it could have ever needed to claim her life. It did not want to kill her. It Mm -hmm. wanted to make its presence known to the Warrens and it did so very dramatically. But when they left the house that night, they did not even know if my mother was dead or alive. Wow. And they came back uh, a couple of months later, just prior to Halloween to see how she was doing, if she was still with us. Mm-hmm. And when my mother opened the door and saw that it was them, um, she did not invite them in. She asked if they returned her notebook that Mrs. Warren had borrowed with all of her recollections, all of her um, historical research on the property. I mean, it was about two or three inches thick Wow! Uh, of all the, the, countless hours of research <laughs> excuse me <coughs> it's allergy season in florida oh God, same here i don't know what's wrong oh. with 2021 allergies i, I can't oh, i don't just can't even i mean you know who can live on mucinex oh my god yeah me too <laughs> um but uh you know it was when mrs warren after having sworn to her that she would borrow it xerox everything in it and return to her return it to her failed to do so um 
my mother was just disgusted and she um, closed the door. She said, you know, we're all done here and we've never seen it since. And in mm -hmm. fact, it's my understanding through one of the producers of the film that my mother's notebook with all of her sketches and her, uh, her uh, descriptions of the events that happened in the house were sold as part of the case files of the Warrens and that we will never see them again and should have no expectation of ever seeing that notebook again, which my mother considered part of her legacy to leave to her children. Mm -hmm. So that's a very sore point. Um, I think that Mrs. Warren kept it because she perceived it to be a haunted item, that it was not something that anyone else should see. Um, and But we all know that she was a collector of things. And that's how the Warren Museum came to be mm -hmm. from, you know, one investigation after another, after another, where things left the point of investigation and went to reside in her museum. So that being said, people can take that for whatever it's worth to them and perceive it however they please. That's just the truth. That's mm -hmm. just what happened. Um, and my mom closed the door and she said, we're all done here and did not have any contact with the Warrens for the next six years because that was in October of 1974. Um, and, uh, and then in um, August of 1980, after we had already resettled, sold the farm and had resettled in Georgia, my mom got a phone call uh, from Mrs. Warren and I don't even, I was, you know, pre Google days. I don't even know how she found us, but right. she did. And um, asked my mother then if she could write the book, uh, make a movie um, and offered my parents a boatload of money to do it. And my mother was very reluctant, didn't even want to have the conversation with her. And Lorraine said to her, you need to at least discuss this with Roger. This is, you know, life-changing money that I'm offering you um, to tell your story. And you don't even have to be involved. Um, and that night before, well, dad had, dad had come home later that afternoon. I was in the house when the call came. So I heard at least one side of it. And then my mother telling me the other side. Um, and I was extremely reluctant. I'm like, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, and my mother agreed with me, but she said, well, you know, I'll have to talk to your father about this because, you know, I can't just make another unilateral decision around this farmhouse. Um, and he came home and asked if we would all like to go out to dinner. And mom was the only one that stayed behind in the house. Uh, and this is in volume three. This is part of the reason why volume three was so difficult because uh, profound attachments were formed at the farm and some negative energy persisted uh, or entities even. And my mother went down into the cellar of our new house in Cherokee County in um, Georgia to throw in a load of laundry while all the rest of us were out having dinner. And she was attacked in the cellar of 
our new home and a 200 pound solid oak door that was well propped and secured against a back wall came flying off that wall and landed on top of her as she was putting clothes into the washing machine. It dislocated her shoulder. It gave her a concussion. Um, she was a mess, an absolute mess. Uh, it was, ab- it was, oh my God, it was terrible. It was terrible. Did she and, almost feel like, here we go again in a way? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, um, one of the other aspects of the third volume, I'm not trying to give away too much of it, but when we left the house, Nancy would not come. It fractured our family to sell the farmhouse because we never all lived together under the same roof again. My sister, Nancy was so upset that my parents sold the house that she went to the new owners and she was their babysitter. Um, They were the abutting landowners. And she said, I'll stay on as the caretaker. I know you want to do work on the house. And, um, you know, they wanted to restore it uh, to its original colonial splendor, um, being one of the original colonial farmhouses that were left in the country. And, um, and they, happily agreed for her to stay on uh, but we left without her hmm. and as we were pulling out of the yard I looked up and everybody had been crying because you know it was goodbye we didn't know when we were going to see her again and everyone was upset it was very emotional and I looked behind her and I said mom look behind Nancy look in the window behind Nancy she was standing on the front porch when it was still on the house And uh, there was an apparition of a woman standing right behind her in the middle window of the dining room, just standing there right directly behind her. And, uh, you know, my mother just shook her head and she said, you know, I don't feel good about this. I don't want to leave her alone here. I don't. I don't. And we got to Georgia two days later and my sister Cindy had gone down with a family friend to bring the horses get them settled and out to pasture and in the new barn and, and all of that and get the house ready to receive the rest of us while we finished packing. And when we pulled into the yard, it was about maybe 6.15, 6.30 in the morning, it was dawn. And uh, we pulled into the driveway of the new house and that same apparition was standing behind my sister, Cindy. Wow. And my mother... just gasped and she said this isn't over this will never be over oh no and she was right this will never be over so i don't think that anybody that's you know watching today should ever expect to see another live stream with my family from the farm that was the one and only time Um, that that will happen. My mother has said never again. Everybody in the family has said never again. Mm -hmm. And I respect that. I will adhere to it. I won't ever ask. Um, That was a one shot deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was. It was more than I anticipated in terms of the emotional disruption that it caused for my, my dear family. 
I won't ever put my mother in a situation again where she feels challenged in the way that she felt challenged. She stepped up and she told her stories and people by, you know, hundreds of thousands of people heard right from her. And she is a very elusive creature, um, very, uh, very much prone to solitude, never in the public eye. Rarely has she done any kind of an interview of any sort. Mm -hmm. um, the only time anybody's ever seen her in an interview was back in uh, 2015. She agreed very reluctantly to do uh, an interview for Paranormal Witness. Um, and they kept her for six hours. And I think she was in the show for five minutes. Wow. And she said, nope, nope. I mean, what she gave them was gold, gold. And it all ended up on the cutting room floor. And she said, my time on earth is too precious and valuable to me. If they did not consider my story worthy of telling, I don't intend to tell it again. Hmm. Wow. I wish, yeah, that's, that's sad in a way, right? Yeah. Yeah, um, it is sad. Well, the thing that was so sad about it is that they just threw it out. You know, what harm would it have done to up for pile all of it and put it on a CD yeah. or a DVD and hand it to me and say, here's your mom's interview, you know, after their show aired. And, you know, I mean, even if it was just for us to keep uh, as a keepsake for our family to have that. Uh, but they were so, you know, you can't talk about this. You can't show any of this. You know, we'll send you all a copy of the show, but you all have to sign off that if ever shows up on the internet that you're each liable for a $250,000 fine. I was like, you know what? Wow. Keep it. Yeah. It's yours. Keep it. You know, I don't need that bullshit. I do not. No, no. And, you know, and I, I learned the hard way about the industry. You know, I really did learn the hard way about not only the publishing industry, but the film industry. Mm -hmm. And really for them, our story doesn't mean anything. It's just another sensational story to sensationalize more. And um, the truth doesn't matter. Um, nothing matters except the bottom line. And that is to me, uh, cynical, disrespectful, and utterly distasteful uh, take on what I perceive to be a message of supreme importance to all of humanity. And that is that there is something beyond our mortal existence. Mm -hmm. And that simple line is the great takeaway from our 10 year experience in that farmhouse. Each and every one of us experienced something so significant, so profound, so utterly life altering um, that it literally changed who each and every one of us was as an individual. Um, and it took me more than 30 years 
to even reach down and find the courage to tell our story to the world. And my mom had a lot to do with that because when I told her that I had started compiling our stories, uh, our experiences from the farm, she said to me, I'm very proud of you, honey. She said, you're the writer in the family. It should be you that does this. And this is not the kind of story that one should rightfully take to the grave. Right. No. And she was right. Yeah. Um, One question I did have was, it wasn't, the negative entity in the house wasn't Bathsheba, was it? No. She she was. um, No. And I'm not saying she was like the most pleasant. No. Person. You know, I mean, she had a reputation as being brutal to her farmhands and she was not an Arnold. She was not Richardson. She did not live in the farmhouse. Um, she lived at the uh, Sherman farm, which was from where the farm is as the crow flies about a mile away. Um, but back in that time, there were only a few homesteads in the area, uh, in that region of the state. And, um, so of course everybody I'm sure knew each other. It was also pre Facebook. And so there are many elements of her life and her story that we will never know about. And that holds true for everyone else that ever lived or died in that farm, you know, or on the property or, you know, on the premises or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, we don't know. We're never going to know. To me, it doesn't matter who they were in life. That they still are in afterlife is what matters. That's what matters. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that they're attached to their earthbound personas at all, but I do believe that they retain certain characteristics of when they were alive. And I don't know why they don't move on, why spirit exists, if it's to teach us. Or if it's because they're afraid to go to the light because they don't know if the light is, you know, some glorious heavenly place or if it's the fire and brimstone of eternal damnation. You know, many, many documented hauntings have had to do with people who either died so suddenly or tragically that they weren't, they didn't seem to know they were dead Hmm. or they took their own lives, which is not only frowned upon now, but two, 300 years ago, that was considered the most mortal of sins. And so if you, if you killed yourself, it was a given that you would burn in hell eternally. Mm -hmm. It was just part of the entire religious structure Mm -hmm. of the time, Um, regardless of which, uh, religion you practiced. It was kind of uniformly across the board. You're just not allowed to off yourself. It's just that simple. Um, so I don't know. I mean, there are far more questions than there are answers. And I even preface uh, in volume one that people who read the book or all three of the books will come away with more questions than answers. But it is a thorough examination of the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Mm -hmm. Um, Only one of the spirits in the house ever self-identified. And it was the little five-year-old boy um, who told my sister April that his name was Oliver Richardson. 
Okay. Um, and that was before we knew when we bought it, it was the Arnold estate. And so we figured the Arnolds built the farm, but it was actually the Richardson family that followed Roger Williams down to the colony of Rhode Island that were originally deeded the property in 1680. And the house as it stands now was completed in 1736. It was, you can literally see how the house was built onto over mm -hmm. time. There's the wall between my bedroom, my old bedroom and the middle bedroom upstairs has an outdoor window on an mm -hmm. inside wall. Wow. So you can see how the house has built, been built onto over time. Um, but as it stands now, was completed in 1736, which was 40 years before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, so it makes it a true colonial home. Mm -hmm. um, but Bathsheba did not live in that house. Uh, the town historian, who was in his 90s at the time when we moved in, told my mother that um, Bathsheba was at the house and that while she was, that a baby died in her care. Uh, and that there was uh, an inquest um, into what happened and how, uh, and that basically um, she was let off the hook, that there was no evidence uh, that she did anything to deliberately harm the baby. Um, however, in the court of public opinion, she was tried and convicted and lived a very long, miserable life with that sword of Damocles hanging over her head. Uh, and so I think it's little wonder that the woman was not the most pleasant human being. She had four children. Three of them did not survive past the age of four. Hmm. Uh, and she lived a long, miserable life. So I am her great defender and I can certainly not absolve her of anything she was accused of. But I can also say that I don't think that anybody, anybody ever, anywhere should be accused of murder without there being some legit, legitimate evidence to back up that claim, that that is a heinous accusation. And she was accused of practicing witchcraft and selling her soul to the devil with the sacrifice of the infant, you know, a lot of the you know, it was a different time back then. It was, you know, I mean, a hundred years before she lived, women were being murdered in Salem, mm -hmm. you know, because the word witch got cast in their direction. Talk about casting aspersions. Yeah. It can cost you your life. You know, there are still uh, to this day on this planet, that word can get a woman killed mm -hmm. and frequently does. Uh, in, in a variety of different cultures. So, um, you know, that's playing with fire mm -hmm. and it's very dangerous. And, uh, and I just don't think that Bathsheba would be buried in hallowed ground in the Riverside Cemetery in Harrisville, Rhode Island, had there been any evidence, any proof that she was practicing the dark arts. They would not have allowed her to be buried where she is. So yeah. uh, I think it's all rumor and innuendo. And I go into great depth about that, especially in volume three. You know, not only do I put out what we were told about her in volume one and two, but then I really explore it in the third book 
in a chapter called The Season of the Witch. And what it is is a historical retrospective of where that word first appeared in print, how it was used against women and men to uh, claim their lives in the most gruesome ways that death was the only mercy. Um, going back to the um, 1500s in England, uh, and interestingly, it was Elizabeth, the queen, who did the most damage uh, in terms of subjugating women and having them tortured and drawn and quartered and every conceivable way that you can harm a human body till it dies. Uh, we live in a sick world. We live in a sick world um, where pain and suffering is a part of the equation for far too many. And so what I wanted to do was bring the truth to light, to literally bring the truth to light, because I have seen the dark side of existence, mm -hmm. and I choose deliberately to live in the light so that I cannot be touched by it ever again. Mm -hmm. What do you think the negative entity was in the house? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But what I saw the night of the seance leads me to believe that it was not earthbound, um, that it was. And I do not use the word demonic. I don't, I've never seen a demon. I don't know if demons exist. Uh, no one does. Mm -hmm. So, you know, people that speak with such authority on the subject, like, you know, they're the official experts on it's, it's just a crock of shit. You know, I mean, anybody tells you that they're an expert in the field of paranormal investigation, run away from them, run away from them. It's always Don't about walk. learning. Yep. You know, this is not a field where there are experts. There are no experts. If my family doesn't qualify as experts, there are none. So, uh, you know, that's another thing that aggravates me, which you can probably tell. Um, it's, it's just disingenuous at best. It's living in bad faith. Um, and trying to, you know, claim some Arab authority that simply does not exist. You know, that said, all presumed, accepted, existing science now was once considered pseudoscience. Mm -hmm. And I think that the same is true for um, supernatural paranormal investigation. Um, but I don't know. I don't have any answers for you about what that was or what it was that attacked my mother, what spoke through her being in a language that I know does not exist on this planet. Perhaps it was an ancient language um, that is lost now. I don't know. Um, but I do know, as I mentioned earlier, that it had all the power that it needed to kill her. That's and what it I didn't kill her. That was the one question. Do you have a few more minutes? I know we went a I little over. Awesome. Um, one of the questions I had was, when did you notice the oppression happen? Like kind of like the stages of the oppression. I know that you said, like I read, because I don't need to ask you, because like it's widely known that the day you moved in, you saw your first spirit. Yes. Um, but I didn't know he was a spirit. 
No. And then in 1960, absolutely flesh and blood, solid, alive to me. Wow. And that was like right away almost, right? It was right away. It was yeah. within moments. Yeah. Come on, baby. Come on. Excuse me. I That's have okay. a, I have a peanut butter cup that needs kisses. <laughs> oh, it's the rump roast. Okay. Say hi to Mike. Say hi to Mike. Aww. This is my baby. That's this is awesome. my baby. I feel like the Lion King, you know. Yep. Behold. <laughs> my um my day job is I do animal um rescue and control and all that stuff. So it's nice to see that. She's a rescue. Awesome. She's good. My good. sweet baby rescue, <laughs> yes. I found her when she was three and a half pounds and emaciated, and now she's 13 pounds. How did that happen? She's happy. <laughs> yes, she is. Yes, she is. So um I'm sorry, I got off track, uh, which I always do as soon as I see her face. Mm -hmm. Um, Ask me again what that was. The um, the stages of the oppression, because I know you saw your your first apparition when you moved in. Yeah, Um, we I think we were we were probably a, a good couple of years in. Before we started noticing that mom was different that things were and she had um made a connection with a local woman named fran fran cedarback and they were both you know we they lived her family lived in a haunted house in chapacha um so they had that in common and they could talk without feeling um you know like they were being, they were in any way being judged. They could speak very openly. Um, and, um, but they would also go shopping at antique shops and they would buy vintage clothing and they seemed so drawn to like the 17th and 17th and 18th centuries. Uh, but then we noticed that my mother's voice started to change. Uh, and it seemed much higher pitched. Uh, it was strange. It was very strange. It was a very gradual progression, but it was happening. And she was um, more and more depressed. She was shrinking away. Um, she was not eating properly. She was trying to live on coffee and cigarettes, which take my word for it, cannot be done. Um and um yeah it was gradual but it was mrs warren that identified bathsheba as the malignant spirit in the house knowing nothing of the history of the house but then she blamed everything on her everything on her that was the misjudgment Um, of the seance too right uh, I, i certainly think so well you know if mrs warren was so absolutely certain that bathsheba sherman was the offending spirit in the house then why would you bring a medium and a priest into the house to throw open wide the doors to the netherworld to determine who the offending spirit was, if you were so certain who it was? You know, um, in retrospect, it is safe to say and accurate to say that big mistakes were made. Um, I don't believe in my heart that the Warrens did anything uh, malicious. I don't. Um, I think that they truly 
truly wanted to help our family and that they were in over their heads. Um, and in fact, Mrs. Warren did admit that to me in 2013 when I spent a weekend with her out in California uh, with the fear-based carbon units at, <laughs> at Warner Brothers and New Line Cinema who were afraid to tell the real story. Um, and, uh, you know, she admitted that from the moment they crossed the threshold, they walked into something that they were not prepared for. Um, and even Ed, prior to his death, went on the record um, saying that the parent family haunting was, in his own words, the most intense, most compelling, most disturbing, and most significant of all the paranormal investigations that he and Lorraine ever conducted, which is why it turned out to be the first film in the series. But it's also what confused James Wan because he is an aficionado of the paranormal and particularly um, well-versed in Warren cases. And he had never heard of our story. And that is because my mother told Mrs. Warren after she was attacked in the cellar of our new house in Georgia, um, she called back the next day, Mrs. Warren did, and my mother told her what happened. And she said, Lorraine, we're not doing this. Please, please don't ever call me again. And she never did. I often wonder if Lorraine had some sort of attachments to her from all of the the cases she'd been on over time too. Never. I think that if attachments really do form, and I think that that's absolutely plausible and conceivable, um, that spirit attaches to certain individuals, uh, that yes, absolutely, especially considering how deeply immersed she was in terms of the field. Um, you know, that was one of the lines in the film that I found most compelling was when um, Patrick says, uh, Vera, you know, who played them. Um, every time one of these things happens, it takes a piece of Lorraine. It takes a piece of her. And I, I quote that. That, <laughs> that was true. Yeah, that was true. Now, from observing Ed and Lorraine doing their their investigating style in your house. This is more of a paranormal question for me. Um, and you've seen modern day paranormal investigators. How different is it technique wise? Very different. Yeah. Very different. Their, their approach was as much academic as it was perceptive. Um, Lorraine being a spiritualist, a psychic medium, uh, you know, somebody that was tuned in um, to the other side. She was the one that was doing the, the work in terms of connecting, um, hearing messages uh, and sensing, you know, her extrasensory perceptions were very heightened. Um, whereas Ed, was very concerned about the impact that it was having on five vulnerable children. Mm -hmm. um, and he interviewed us. My sister April would not tell them about her little friend upstairs 
because she was afraid that they were powerful enough to take him away. And she didn't want to lose him because she cared about him. And she was too young to understand that he was literally from another realm, that his interactions with her were from the other side. She was just only five years old, six years old um, when they first came around. Um, no, she was about seven, I think, when they first came around, but still very young, very impressionable. And she wanted to protect her friend Oliver from them. So she never told them anything. Uh, the rest of us felt like it was okay to spill our guts. And we did. Mm -hmm. You know, so there are many aspects of their case files that are absolutely accurate. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, uh, that got lost in translation mm -hmm. um, to from case files to movie script. Because, of course, Hollyweird uh, depends on method and formula mm -hmm. to sell their wares. And so what they do is they just recreate, reconstruct, reconfigure, and regurgitate what has already been successful in the past. So that's what they did with our story, which is why it bears no actual resemblance to our story. Right. Um, but for those that viewed it as far more than entertainment, um, which I've always had an issue with, you know, I mean, seeing imbeciles throwing popcorn at the screen during the multiple screenings of The Conjuring that I had to endure uh, as I was put out as the face of the movie from coast to coast in one premiere after another. Uh, by Warner Brothers. Um, but, you know, they told me, talk about your books, talk about your books. I mean, they were very gracious in terms of that. But I was also the one that promoted the film for them because none of the actors uh, or, you know, anybody really involved, deeply involved, engrossed in the making of the film was all that anxious because of incidents that occurred on the sets, both sets, mm -hmm. um, to put themselves out there about that, where I was fearless about it. Um, uh, they just uh, stepped back and away from it. So I was responsible for the bulk of the promotion around the film. Mm -hmm. um, but anybody that's really serious about wanting to know the true story behind this film, I know based on a true story, is it's, it's a very powerful line. And when events, people see yeah. that, they just think automatically, well, everything I'm about to watch is true. Well, about 95% of what you saw in The Conjuring was something that was finagled, twisted, altered, um, or made up uh, by the screenwriters to fit the bill for uh, a Hollywood script. So uh, yeah, if they want to know the real story, it's very easy to Google our family name and the books pop right up. Mm -hmm. And, you know, yes, it's an investment of time and treasure. If you want to get the hardbound copies at 500, 550 pages a piece, they're not cheap, but um, you they can get them on Kindle um, for like, I think $12 for the whole set on Kindle. Um, you can, there's a way to get a hold of these books and read these books that is really much more of an investment of time 
because it's 1500 pages and it doesn't even tell the whole story. But I will tell you that the things that I had mentioned earlier that my sisters had asked me to deliberately leave out of the book, when they saw how warmly received our family was by the existing paranormal community, um, how loved our mother is, how loved you know our 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 family is, it really caused them to relax a bit. And so now as I'm working on the screenplays for a series, House of Darkness, House of Light, which will air over the course of three years, the only way to flesh this story out appropriately, mm. um, they have told me that I can include those stories in the screenplays. Oh, so awesome. what people see on, you know, whether we, whether we go with Netflix or, or, you know, whatever streaming service picks it up, um, we know when we're ready to pitch it, when everything's all in place and the cast and everything's done, you know, we're going to take it out into the world and we're working diligently on that. I'm working with a good friend of mine who is a, an official Hollywood screenwriter that left that end of the business and moved to Florida. And we're very good friends, uh, he and his wife. And we've been working on this project now for two and a half, three years. Awesome. Uh, to get this story told in its entirety with the mantra of the story with instead of based on a true story being on the screen of the um, the poster, what people will say is house of darkness, house of light, bringing the truth to light. Because yeah, the truth is stranger than fiction. The truth is far more compelling than the film. And anyone who saw the film and really wants to know what happened in that house has access to it. Mm -hmm. But to put it on film, to bring it out where it literally extrapolates the entire story out over the course of three seasons, three um, sets of kids, because we grew up in that house. You know, April looked a lot different at 15 than she did when she was five. I was a lot different at, at 21 than I was at 12. We understand that each season's going to have to have kind of a matching group of uh, female actors to play us, um, but that there's a certain cohesion. Uh, you know, that's where a really good casting director comes in. Um, and I've got one. But, uh, you know, I think it's important to tell this story in a way that touches millions of lives and opens people's eyes to the fact that it is not ashes to ashes, dust to dust, that we are from the moment of birth to the moment of death, we are in transition. And when we die, our energy assumes another form. But energy cannot be created, nor can it be destroyed. Mm -hmm. It goes on uh, in much the same way, the metaphor of the, the butterfly in the chrysalis. And it's almost like when we die, we get our wings and we're mobile and we're free to be spirit. Um, and so I will always be grateful 
that we had the experiences that we had in the house, no matter how difficult some of them were, Mm -hmm. because it left an indelible impression on all of us and through us has done a small part to enlighten the world. Yeah. I was thinking instead of putting based on a true story and stuff like that, you should put, this is a true story. Kind of like a play on it. (laughs) Well, that's what I put on the books. The true story. Yep. Um, Are there any lesser known encounters or that you haven't really talked about encounters that you'd be willing to tell? Like one final story? Then I have to write something down here. Every now and then as a writer, um, I have a really good idea that just kind of jolts itself into my head. And so I have to write it down on a little pad of paper that is always within arm's reach, always hands reach. (laughs) Um, Okay. So that was good. Um, I will tell you that one of the stories that uh, did not make it into the book was um, for the sake of my sister's privacy, my sister, Cindy. She was 14, right around 13, 14 when this occurred and she was taking a bath um, and she was just washing her hair and in the bathtub. And all of a sudden some incredible force pushed her on her chest down under the water and held her there as she beat furiously on the sides of the tub with her fists and kicked furiously with her feet and fought and fought and fought to come up above the water. My sister April was in the kitchen while this was happening. April did not hear anything that was going in the bathroom, going on in the bathroom, but something told her that there was an emergency and you will find throughout the course of the reading of the books, there's awful lot of telepathic communication that goes on in my family. Um, And she just knew that there was something very, very wrong. And she went bolting into the bathroom and she, she broke, she, she burst the bubble of this intense activity that was going on around my sister, Cindy and Cindy could not breathe. She had held her breath as long as she could and had assumed she was going to drown. She just knew she was going to drown. She was going to die, that it would not let her up. And when April opened the door, she came flying up out of the water. I was already off in college when this happened. And Cindy had very long hair. And when she came flying up, April said it came right over the top of her head because she came up with such force. And she was screaming and she was crying, just sobbing uncontrollably um, and credited April with hearing her, hearing her that she was in crisis and intervening on her behalf. Now, if this is going to be included, which I intend for it to be, um, you know, those people, I will be in complete charge of however this goes out into the world, you know, whether it is 
uh, beautifully done or it's uh, a total cluster, you know what, uh, which it will not be. I will not allow that. Um, it will be on me. I will be responsible because nothing goes into the can until I've said so. Um, awesome. And that's why I'm making these this series independently so that I will never, ever again, ever turn my work over to a production company that doesn't give a good goddamn at all how my family is represented or portrayed. Um, but this would need to be filmed in a way that preserves the privacy of the actor who plays my sister. You know, whether that's done through bubble bath or camera angles or whatever, because that was the reason Cindy didn't want it included in the books is because she was obviously in a very vulnerable position mm -hmm. and she didn't even want Cindy's a very modest woman. And she didn't even want people imagining her uh, in that condition. Mm -hmm. um, and she has since changed her mind about that. She thought that because it was a life threatening event, that it was important to include. And as I said earlier, Mike, all of us have seen the darkness. All of us have. Pure, unadulterated evil exists in this world. It does. And it exists in the netherworld. It does. Mm -hmm. um, and it is powerful. And that's why I tell people, you know, be careful what you wish for, for surely you will get it. You know, woe be unto you for anybody that provokes in that house. Woe be unto you for anybody that uh, behaves badly, immaturely. You know, I, I will not name the group, but a very, very famous group uh, did a show that I participated in that had I known what would come of it, I would not have. I would have rejected the invitation to be a part of it. Um, and there was very bad behavior that went on, not in my presence in the house. I mean, everybody was a perfect gentleman, behaved well, was, um, very respectful of the spirits until I left and then all hell broke loose. Wow. And, you know, anybody that is willing to pretend to be possessed in that house and as i say stated previously to make a mockery of my mother's pain and the life-threatening situation that she was in that night is no friend of mine no. um it's hard to uh cut people away from you with a scalpel mm -hmm. to just say you don't have my family's best interest at heart you only care about yourself and your reputation, which you just destroyed in the field. Um, and I've had to learn the hard way to discern, to uh, really question people's motivations, their intentions uh, in regards to that house. Now, I don't fault the current owners you know, they're doing with that house exactly what everybody, everybody wanted them to do, which was to open it, to let it become uh, like a 
like a paranormal research center for all intents and purposes. Um, and for the most part, they have succeeded in that. Nor do I expect them to vet people. They're like I am. They take people at their word. And it's on the other end that you find out that some people are lying sacks of shit. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, I'm sorry to swear. I hey, do we that. don't edit this. I, I, I've already sworn twice on this, so we're good. Okay, good. I'm sorry. It just comes, it just, you know, blah. It just but, but I totally get your frustration because one of the things I thrive on being a paranormal investigator is not going in for the scare, not going in for the right for that knee jerk reaction. I, that, I, I, you know. I don't like that. I, I consider myself a researcher. I, if watching, like I've seen probably every episode of In the Conjuring House, and I scratch my head, I'm like, why are you doing it? And I'll think, why are you doing that? Because yeah. it's not respectful. You need to be, you need to practice respect. Like, I don't think the spirits in, in that house appreciate people poking they the bear, don't. so to speak. And no, it's not fair. It's it's not fair to, like you say, you were there for ten years. You lived there, done that, million yep. times over. Yeah, and to have somebody come in for a night and try and take that ten years, put it in a can, and put it on a forty-three minute episode. That's not fair to you. It's not fair to the house. It's not fair to the history, and definitely not fair to the spirits. Thank you. We are absolutely on the same page. Like-minded kindred spirits. Yeah, and. Yep. Like one of the slogans of my team is history has a voice and we want to be the voice. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's how it is. We, I can't, I really, it upsets me when people expose or use, use locations. I call it like a circus sideshow. They're, it's not, they're not circus yeah. animals. They were once alive, living, breathing people. And, yeah. Well, I don't believe in exploitation of living people, and I don't believe in exploitation of the dead. I, um, I believe that they it was their house first. They deserve nothing less than our reverence and respect. I understand why they back off and why they are so reticent when that house is teeming with different teams of investigators. Uh, and camera people and, you know, I mean, a film crew and a sound crew and a this crew and a that crew. They're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What's going on here? You know, and, and I had a very strong sense of that while I was there um, during the live stream. That house, believe it or not, even though we did not accumulate a boatload of obvious evidence that house was supremely active mm -hmm. that weekend, but it was active on an entirely different level. And the communication was very personal and it was very targeted to my family. Um, and it had a very, uh, there was a deep emotional response to it. Mm -hmm. No, and I totally understand that and get that. Like, even when I go to locations where it's family haunts, because we do a lot of residential houses too, I like to go in alone and introduce my no gear, no nothing. Introduce proper myself. Proper introduction. Walk through the house saying, I'm not a weirdo. I'm not here to, to wind you up. I just want to have a conversation. Well, actually, I, you know, I, I would describe you as a weirdo. 
but that is the height of a compliment okay. that one human being can give to another. Um, and John Tenney, uh, who explains the etymology of the word weird, uh, which in its uh, original state was W-Y-R-D, was the people that lived outside of the uh, periphery, on the periphery of the villages and the towns, the people that uh, planted their own gardens and did their own thing and made their own way in the world and were kind of outside of society at large. They were not, um, they basically determined their own destiny. Mm. So they were the bravest and they were the ones that, that bucked authority and basically said, um, this is the way that we want to live and that can stay there. And they were known as the weird. Mm. Um, and then that word evolved over time. And so Mr. Tenney, uh, who I'm very close with, loves to call uh, all of his people, the weirdos. We are the weirdos um, because we do look deeper and look further and live differently and think differently than the masses. Mm -hmm. um, so it is uh, the height of a compliment to call Thank yourself you. a weirdo. I appreciate that. Cool. All right. Wow. We're double our time, I said. We, we really went into it. It was a good conversation. I, I really enjoyed talking to you. Um, Likewise.